If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 6 this morning. Luke chapter 6. Though I have never been there, I have seen many television shows, some fact and some fiction, and some movies that all deal with Mount Everest. And it has a well-earned reputation. Many people every year attempt to climb the mountain and fail. It beats them. It's only those that are willing to spend thousands of dollars to endure physical pain and even risk their life that are able to conquer this mountain. And if we have that idea in our heads about Mount Everest as a physical mountain, then spiritually speaking this morning, we have probably come to the Mount Everest of Jesus' teaching. It is a command that many find difficult to embrace. In fact, some are unwilling to embrace it because of the cost, the hardship, and the risk that it involves. Yet this command not only stands at the heart of what it means to be a disciple for Jesus, but it stands at the heart of what it means for God Himself to exist and to reveal Himself to us. What is this difficult to man? It is simply this, to love our enemies. To love our enemies. God expects that His people... And Jesus, as he is teaching here, expects his disciples to be a people marked by love. And he does not leave us to figure out what that means, but gives us some very specific instructions that we want to see this morning. So I encourage you to follow along as I read in Luke 6, beginning at verse 27. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. May God bless the reading of his word. Already perhaps we feel the difficulty, the weight of these verses and the, the level of love and loyalty to God that they call from us. But before we unpack these things, before we dive into the meat of our text, I think it's important that we start with a little bit of myth busting. Some of you enjoy that show. Uh, I'm not sure that it will be that enjoyable, but uh, it will be even more helpful. First of all, uh, some have read these words and they have come to the wrong conclusion that it is in fact by living a life of love and in keeping the golden rule that we will achieve salvation. That if I simply live a good life and love people, then I will be saved. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Remember, he is teaching to those who are already his disciples. They are already following him. And therefore, what Jesus is teaching is not about how to get saved. He is teaching how to live after you have been saved. 
That is to say, he is teaching about the kind of life that should be produced within us after we have looked to him in faith, believing that he is our savior, trusting ourselves to God through him. This is the kind of life that we should seek to cultivate and have God produce within us. Furthermore, over the years, so well-meaning Christians have tried to define love simply in terms of ancient vocabulary. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, consider that English basically only has one word for love, right? What is that word? It's love, right? So I can talk about uh, loving to go to a baseball game. I can talk about loving my children or loving my car or loving the, the smell of fresh grown gr- uh, mown grass. I mean lots of different things by that, don't I? At least I should. Uh, there's lots of different shade and intensity to each of those loves, but there's only one word. Love. And some have looked to ancient Greek, the language in which the original New Testament was was written, and they see the multiplicity of words for our one word, love, and they say each of these loves must mean something slightly different. So you have four words for love in Greek, eros, storge, phileo, and agape. And some have said each word describes a specific kind of love. So eros is reserved for romantic or erotic love. Phileo is for love among friends. Storge speaks to the kind of intimate love among family. And agape is seen as a divinely given self-sacrificial love that has more to do with our actions than our feelings. Thus many will say it is agape love that defines Christian love. And therefore wherever they find the word agape in the Bible, they say that's the kind of love that's being communicated there. Well, there's a problem with all of that. Namely, it simply doesn't hold up to the way the Bible uses those words. Storge and Eros don't actually appear anywhere in the New Testament, but phileo and agape appear all over. And yet... The word agape that is supposed to be self-sacrificial, divinely inspired, godly love is actually not always used that way very clearly. So, for example, in 2 Timothy 4, when Demas is said to have abandoned Paul, Paul says he abandoned me because he loved the world more than God. What did he do? He agaped the world more than God. That doesn't sound like godly self-sacrificial love. Moreover, in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 13, when Amnon attacks and sexually abuses his half-sister Tamar, the text says it's because he agapes her. Again, does not sound like the kind of idealistic affection, a, a kind of willful doing of good towards some people to which we are seeking to aspire. Furthermore, John tells us that the Father, God the Father, loves God the Son, that God loves Christ. And in the course of just two chapters, he says that God both phileos his son and agapes his son. Both are used interchangeably with no discernible shade of meaning. Now, what's my point to all this? My point to all this, number one, is to say we cannot simply define love, Christian love, by vocabulary. We can't just have an ancient lesson in Greek vocab and say, now we know what love is all about. Now we just go through all of the Bible and look at these uses of the word love and try to know it doesn't work that way. Instead, what we need to do is let God himself define for us what Christian love looks like. When he commands us to love one another, let him tell us what that looks like for our lives. And that's exactly what we see in our text before us. Jesus here defines the kind of love that should mark us out as his people. He shows for us with great clarity and specificity what the love that has been produced within our hearts 
from God because we love His Son and have trusted in Him what that should look like in our lives. So, what should that love look like? Number one, it will look like a love that costs something. It will look like a love that actually costs something. A few years back, I bought a new laptop and it had a newer version of the Windows operating system on it. And I knew from talking with other people that one of the things I was not going to like about this new laptop is that many of the default settings had been changed. New fonts, new power settings, all these things that I knew I was not used to after having a great laptop for six years and being accustomed to all the default settings that came with it. I had a choice. I'm either going to go back through and change all those default settings to what I like them to be or... I'm going to have to get used to the new settings. Now, some of you are sitting there and you have no idea what I'm talking about. You're not techies and you say, I just turn the thing on and try and send an email and that's all you know. Okay, that's fine. But think about the default settings you have in relationships. Some of you have brothers and sisters. Some of you have husbands or wives. And you have grown to know that person very well and you have default settings for your interactions with them. You are in a given situation and you pretty much think you know how they're feeling or what they're going to say. And sometimes this gets us into trouble, doesn't it? Because we don't let them finish sentences. We finish them for them thinking we know what's going to come out of their mouth. And when it's not what's going to come out of their mouth, it infuriates them. And we have problems. Sometimes it's actually cute and fun. You're on a date with your wife and she's talking and you finish this sentence correctly and she smiles at the fact that you know her so well. Right? We have default settings for relationships and how we relate to one another. The, the whole point is to say we have, whether you're techie or non-techie, we all have default settings when it comes to life and especially when it comes to how we love or how we don't love. Particularly when we think of those that we might label enemies. Now you've got different kinds of enemies, don't you? You have kind of global enemies. You have those um, individuals, those groups, those countries that would, that would not be seeking the welfare of the country in which we live, the kind of countries that in the past we've gone to war with. There's that kind of global enemy. But there's also more commonly personal enemies, right? Those people that are kind of a proverbial thorn in the flesh to you. They're always needling you. They're always at your throat. They're always saying bad things about you or not treating you the way that you feel like you want to be treated. What is our default setting towards those kinds of people? Well, we might keep calm, keep our composure, or we might explode. But generally, the underlying attitude is the same. We don't want to be around that person. We don't care for that person. We don't want to do good for that person or even really care if they exist on the planet. We probably even take just a little bit of joy when bad things happen to them. That's our default settings for people that we consider our enemies, people that we don't like. And Jesus' words are so difficult because they're challenging those defaults. He's saying to us, our default settings are wrong and they need to be upgraded. Jesus comes along and says, if you are following me as my disciples, you can't think that way anymore, you can't feel that way anymore, you can't live that way anymore. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Now in the immediate context of Jesus preaching, there was a tradition among the Jews that said this, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
So you can imagine, perhaps, people who had grown up in that environment, people who were part of Judaism, who would actually heard that taught by rabbis before, are listening to Jesus during this massive teaching, as it were, up on uh, the mountain. And he says, love your, and you know in their minds they're already trying to answer the sentence, right? Neighbor. And instead he says, enemies. And they say, what? We've, we've never heard this before. What, what do you mean, love your enemies? Jesus is crashing their defaults. He says, yes. Don't just love your neighbor. Love your enemies. And that still catches us up today, doesn't it? We don't naturally want to love our enemy. We want to hate them. That seems right to us. They are mean to us. Why can't I be mean back to them? It's a conversation I have all the time with little kids especially. They did this to me, therefore I did this to them. They live by the code, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And even though we may not literally do that, very often that's how we feel as well. That is the emotion that is welling up within us. Not one of love, as God defines it, but one of hate. And Jesus actually doesn't let us off that lightly in telling us to love them. We might hear love your enemy and think, okay, okay, I can do this. Someone wrongs me and I won't get mad. I won't get revenge. I can do that. But Jesus doesn't leave it at that, does it? It's not just a matter of don't respond. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus won't leave it at the level of easy for his disciples. Jesus says, you've got to love with a love that's going to cost you something. That's going to cost you something. It's not passive love. It's active love that he calls us to. When someone is your enemy, you don't just say, I'm going to keep my distance and I'm not going to get mad or irritated. No, he says, go after them and love them. Go after them and love them. Jesus gives three specific examples of what this looks like. They are obvious from the passage. Notice that there is a bit of a progression of the intensity. First of all, we are to love in what we do. We are to love in what we do. He says, do good to those who hate you. Now, again, what are we likely to do towards our enemies? Not good. At the, at the very least, we want to be uh, completely passive and impartial. We don't do anything for them, right? So some guy chews us out at work, and we're, we're going through the store, and we see them at the end of the aisle. What do we do? We quickly move on to the next aisle, perhaps the next section of the store, hoping to avoid them altogether. Jesus says, don't do that. Do good for them. Go and talk to them. Go and make nice with them. Do good for them. Perhaps our neighbor... Well, whatever neighbor that is that has, perhaps uh, they uh, they have a bad habit. Whether it's letting their dog do your do their its business in your yard, or whether it's setting off fireworks too late at night when there's no holiday. Whatever it is, we're tempted to see the neighbor and just look straight ahead and act as if they're not there and avoid them and think, you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not I'm going to be godly. I'm not going to do anything bad towards them. And Jesus says that's not godly. That's like godly is you go and do good for them. You seek out the enemy and do something good. Secondly, he says, love in what you say. We should love in what we say. Verse 28, bless those who curse you. Now, how often do we say something negative about our enemies? How often do we describe some way in which we've been wronged and we only give one side of the story? And that story makes us look real good and them real bad. Right? That's, that's not blessing to them, is it? How often do we actually speak directly to our enemies, saying something nice to them? 
something of blessing to them, something that will encourage them in their life. Jesus says, that's the kind of life that you need to live. It's not a life where you identify that person as my enemy. I don't want to be around them. No, he says that you are to engage the enemy with love, true, genuine affection, doing good for them, even blessing them. When, when they curse at you, the response is not to curse back. When, 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 someone, when someone goes after you at work, we should not go back after them. Oh yeah, well you do this. No, Jesus did not say they will know you are my disciples by the, your ability to talk smack. That's not what he said. He said they will know you are my disciples by the love that you have. Not just for one another, but also even for your enemies. We love in what we do, we love in what we say, and we also then love in how we pray. Love in how we pray. Jesus says, pray for those who abuse you. I think D.A. Carson is exactly right when he says this. We find it difficult to hate those for whom we pray. We find it difficult not to pray for those whom we love. What does that mean? It means this. We should pray for our enemies. Why? Because we can't make ourselves love someone. You understand that, right? No matter how hard we try, we can't make ourselves love anyone. But God can cause us to love someone. God can change our hearts. God can grow affection for someone in our lives. And the simplest, the easiest, the best way to make that happen is to begin praying for someone. Because it's very difficult to hate someone that you're praying for every day. So that neighbor who's a terrible neighbor, pray for him. Every time they do something wrong, stop and pray for them. And don't pray the prayers of imprecation from the Psalms, right? May, may, may their children be dashed on the rocks and all their teeth be kicked down their throat. That's not the things we're talking about praying for. We're praying that God blesses them and does good to them, that God prospers them, that ultimately they come to see the light of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are saved. We pray for them. More than just some practical advice on how to treat your enemies, then these things become a checklist of sorts. You can ask yourself, what good have I done for my enemies? How have I blessed my enemies? When was the last time I prayed for my enemies? Thomas Cranmer was an English reformer. He founded what is now known as the Anglican Church, and he was a man who lived out this word of his Lord. It was said of Cranmer that the quickest way for someone to become his friend was to do him wrong. For the minute anyone did something wrong to him, he would work hard to love them and eventually win them over as a friend. I think that embodies what Jesus says. And the question for us is, can someone say that of us? Can someone say that we are so loving, even towards our enemies, that the best way to become our friend is to wrong us? And we will go after them. We will pursue them. We will love them until they come to love us back. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's a costly love, but it's also a love that extends grace. This is the second thing that we see in verses 29 through 31. The love to which Jesus calls us is a love that extends grace. Having four kids and not much time, I rarely get to go out to the movies. And one that I really wanted to see, I missed. So I'm looking forward to... DVDs coming out, and that was the movie 42, which dramatizes the story of Jackie Robinson's part in breaking down the race barrier in baseball. I haven't seen that movie, but I was interested to read an article that reviewed the movie, 
And it's interesting because it told specifically why the manager of the Dodgers, Branch Rickey, actually picked Robinson to be the first black player to play in the major league. Yes, Robinson was great at baseball, but there were other great players from the Negro Leagues at that time. Many amazing players that would actually come back into the major leagues that had previously been all white after that race barrier was broken. So why was Jackie chosen among all the others? It's clear, both from their autobiographies and from those that knew them, that Ricky was a devout Christian and he knew Robinson was as well. At their first meeting, Robinson asked the manager, so you want a player who's got the guts to fight back against the racial prejudice that would be seen? Ricky's reply was, no, I want a player who has the guts to not fight back. To not fight back. And later on, when when all of the discrimination that you can imagine coming from all sides, from his teammates, from the other team, from the fans, people intentionally sliding into base with their cleats high, bruising and slicing up Robinson's legs. Ricky came to him and said, remember, remember, just like our Savior, you must learn to turn the other cheek. We've got to turn the other cheek. You see, this kind of love to which Jesus calls us to is that kind of love. It is a love that extends grace. He says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now, some in the Mennonite tradition have tried to absolutize these verses in a way that leads to pacifism. That is to say that Jesus envisions his people not be involved in violence of any kind in the world. But that's not, that's not the point that Jesus is getting at. And in fact, I think it misses the point, not only of Jesus' teaching, but of the rest of the teaching of the Bible. So Jesus is not saying, for example, to the battered spouse, you stay there and you take it and you endure the beating. That's not what Jesus is saying. I think Jesus would say, leave. There's, there's no reason for you to endure that. Jesus is not saying that when someone breaks into your house, you shouldn't defend your family. That's, that's not what he's saying here. But what he's talking about is this, that we don't take personal vengeance. That we don't take personal vengeance. So this means for our justice system and for our military, that as a, as a society, as a culture, those things are fine. In fact, we see Paul, probably the premier disciple of Jesus in the New Testament, when his rights are violated by the Roman judicial system, he files a protest. Now, he didn't have to file that protest, but he did. And he leveraged that protest and continued to leverage it so that he could take the gospel all the way up to Caesar's world, to Caesar's very palace. Now, the point of all that is to say, government, justice, um, trial by jury, these things are not inherently wrong. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not just saying, roll over and, and, and take whatever comes. You've got no recourse. No, what he is saying is, in fact, just the opposite of that. If the legal system provides means for you to get justice, then you seek justice. But it's not personal. It's not vengeful. So a guy has hot coffee spilled on him. You don't go... $10 million after McDonald's, right? That's personal and exorbitant. That's not justice. That's just you wanting a, a payday. If someone does something wrong to you, you don't immediately think, how can I go wrong them back to get even? That's what Jesus is cluing in here on, on not taking personal vengeance. And what he says is, in other words, we're extending grace to people. And first we do that through forgiveness. We display grace through forgiveness. Jesus says, the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other 
also. Now, I have to admit, for a long time, I was very confused by that command. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate that. So, somebody laughed at my joke. When I was younger, uh, I, I grew up largely in church, about the age of four on. And uh, back in children's church one week, we watched a movie. And that movie was made probably in the late 70s. Oh, I know, it was either the late 70s or early 80s, which means that there was not much in the way of good Christian film being produced. There still isn't, but that's another time for another discussion. The point was, or my point is now, rather, in that movie, there was this Christian kid who was being picked on and being bullied. And in one case, they were, it was after a ball game, and they were on the field together, and the guy is, uh, the, the, the young bully, they're probably fourth or fifth grade, the young bully is really laying into this kid, and, and gets so worked up because the kid won't, won't be provoked, he won't fight back, and he, and he hauls off and literally slaps him across the face and knocks him to the ground. And the music gets all dramatic, and the camera angles shift a little bit, and the kid gets up, he'd been smacked this way, the kid stands there, he looks at the guy in the eye, and he turns his other cheek like this. I remember in the movie, the kid's eye, the bully's eye just kind of bugged out. He got scared. He dropped his stuff and he ran away. And I'm sitting there at eight years old and I'm sitting there listening. I thought, why did he do that? He should have slugged him on the other cheek, right? I mean, isn't it, wouldn't that be our response? Oh, you, you, want, you want more? Wap, wap, I'll give you more, right? Now, but what's the point? I think they took that verse way too literally, okay? If someone comes up and smacks you across a cheek and knocks you down, my advice is not stand up and literally just turn the other cheek. That, that's not what Jesus is saying here, okay? What he's saying is, by turning the other cheek, it is, is a metaphor for forgiveness. In Jesus' particular context, to be smacked across the face in first century Jewish society was not an assault, it was an insult, They weren't slapping you to to knock you to the ground, to bust out your teeth, to beat you up. They would come and almost ceremonially uh, actually backhand you across the face as an insult to everything that you were and everything that you stood for. They disagree with what you were saying, thought you were blasphemy, anything. Boom, it was was an insult. In other words, you're not worth my time. You're less than human. You're a nobody. That's what they were saying. And Jesus is saying, when, when someone goes after you like that, when you've been insulted, whether through some behind-the-scenes deal at work, whether a derogatory mark that's been made, don't fall back on your default setting, which is to get even. To be justified. Have you ever been wrongly accused of something? Particularly in public? There's that burning desire to stand up and to justify yourself, to point out the error and let everyone know you did not do that thing. Jesus is saying sometimes you just let it go. Sometimes you just let it go. Because it's not about taking personal revenge. It's not about resulting to the default setting. You can seek justice, but we must always forgive. We must always forgive those who injure us and assault us. I was just listening to someone giving a talk this week, and they were they were speaking about a missionary couple in a country that was predominantly Muslim and driven by revenge culture. It was a hostile country, and eventually the husband was um, kidnapped and killed. He was beheaded in the town square, and the news covered this, and they found the widow, the, the missionary wife, and they put a microphone in her face and said, uh, what do you think about this? Do you have anything to say about this? And to her credit, she looked directly into the camera and she said, I want those people who did this to my husband to know that I forgive them. 
then I forgive them. Now, personally, I, I, I don't know that I could have said that and meant it. But here's the thing. She did. And it was like a gospel bomb blew up in that country. In a revenge culture, no one would ever say, I forgive my enemies. It just didn't happen. And for this heinous, unprovoked act that had taken place, for this woman to say that publicly, it broke down barriers and now the gospel is moving freely through that country. Part of the love that Jesus calls us to is one of forgiveness. Even when we're wronged, our first impulse is not retaliate, get revenge. It is, I forgive you. I forgive you. That's how we show grace. And secondly, we show grace through generosity. We show grace through generosity. He says in verse 29, From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. A cloak was like our equivalent of a coat and a tunic, a shirt. And Jesus is essentially saying, if someone is so desperate to steal your coat from you, just give them your shirt too. Just give them your shirt too. When someone asks you for help, don't despise them. Don't look down on them. He says, help them. Now, now what is Jesus going after here? The same thing he went after in the Beatitudes that we saw a couple of weeks ago, or, or last week rather, he's going after the rich. And although we said it before, let's say it again, it is not the rich per se that Jesus has a problem with, but rather the common reality that many who are rich exalt in their wealth and trust in their wealth above all things, so that their money is their God. And one way Jesus says to show that wealth isn't our God is to be generous with what God has given to us. Rather than run from the needy person, Love says, I will help meet their needs. Rather than panic when someone grabs your stuff, we trust in God who is given and can take it away. See, the default setting again is, that's mine. Don't take it from me. I want it back. And Jesus says, flip the switch. Get rid of the default setting here. The default setting for my people, the default setting for my disciples is now generosity. Again, that doesn't mean if someone nicks your car, you don't file a police report and try and get it back. That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying. Okay? But what he is saying is you don't take personal vengeance. You, you, you don't lose your faith because your car got stolen. You persevere, you continue on. And more than that, proactively, you look for ways to help those who have less than you. You see, to some degree, it's easy not to freak out when we lose things. But it's really difficult to be on the lookout for those opportunities to help somebody out. To say, you can use my extra car for this week because I won't need it. To say, meet me at the store and I'll fill your gas tank up. Or, let me bring some groceries over. It's very difficult for us to do that because that's not our mindset. That's not our default setting. Our default setting is, I'm going to take care of myself. And sometimes being generous means we don't get everything that we want. We simply live with our needs. And we allow the overflow to go for the needs of others. Jesus says that's a display of grace that should come through in the love that should mark us as Jesus' people. Thirdly, our love should display grace through selflessness. Grace through selflessness. Verse 31. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. As kids, we learn this as the golden rule, and it's really the central idea behind Jesus' ethic of love. It's profound in its simplicity as well. Treat others the way you want to be treated, right? Why is that so profound? 
because it works everywhere. Every context. It works in the playground. It works at the office. It works in your neighborhood. It works in your marriage. It works in your family. It works everywhere. Treat people the way you want to be treated. But on a deeper level, on a more profound level, it also cuts across the grain of who we are and how we live by default. We very much tend to be people who are all about getting what we want and never thinking of others. In our minds, we owe nothing to no one, but everybody owes us something. That's our default way of thinking. And Jesus cuts across and he says, no, treat others the way you want to be treated. Now again, culturally in their context, here's what they've heard all their life. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. You see the the difference? It's negative. It's about self-preservation. Do you want that guy? Do you want that guy to go after your kids? Then don't go after his. Don't do it. Don't do it. But Jesus is saying, yeah, 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 that, sure, that's, that's good. But how about, we, how about we flip it around? How about you go out and you find somebody to love because that's what you would want someone to do for you? You see the difference? Jesus is saying, again, it's not a, a passive kind of, well, if something comes up, then, then I'll respond well. It's saying, no, because God has been active in his love for me, pursuing me, seeking me when I was unlovable, when I was an enemy. Now I'm going to do the same. I'm going to be active in my love towards others as well. This is how, this is how we show grace in the love that we are to display. Finally, the love displayed by Jesus' disciples should be a love that surpasses the world. It should be a love that surpasses the world. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. I love these verses because Jesus puts things into perspective for us. He says, look, this is how the world acts, Right? Even the world does this. If if you scratch someone's back, you expect that your back will be scratched as well. In fact, often you will scratch someone's back because you want them to scratch yours. They have something you want. They can do something for you. Therefore, I'm going to be nice to them. I'm going to give something that they want. I'll do something for them that they would like. Therefore, I will get something in return. Isn't that how the world works? On every level? Most people get get even married thinking that way. It's not because I I actually love you as a person. It's because I know you can do something for me. We love either because we have been loved by that person and we have hopes that our love will cause them to evoke an even greater response of love. Or we're simply nice with people because we think we can get something out of the relationship. And Jesus calls calls us out on it. He knows that's how we live. And he says, is that it? Is that the measure of your love? Even the world loves like that. What good is that? How different is that? Thus, we as God's people should not define our love by the standard of sinner's love. We should not define our love by the standard of sinner's love. That's what Jesus is saying here. How do you know that that's your standard? How do you know that you still have world default setting? Well, I'll give you the advice that someone gave to me. And that is ask yourself how you treat the people that are usually considered the lowest in society. Namely, the people that work as public janitors. People that scrub the toilets, people that take out the trash. How do you treat them? You say, why is that, why is that an indicator? The indicator is this. They give nothing back to you. Right? You, you see a guy at a restaurant, 
you're, you're, you know, you've been enjoying, uh, whatever dinner it is that you've had, and you're moving back to the bathroom, and the guy is coming out from cleaning the toilets. If, if you blow past him and don't say anything to him, if you even, uh, kind of gruff a little bit because he's in your way and keeping you from, 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 from hitting the urinal, what difference does it make? You don't know him. You're never going to see him again. It's not like he's a cook and he can poison your food or something, right? I mean, there's absolutely nothing you can get back from that guy. And that's the point. If you show love to that kind of person who can give nothing back to you, then it indicates that the switch has been flipped, that God's work is in a change in your heart, that now you're loving not simply to be loved, but because it's the right thing to do and God has set the example by loving you. It's not a sinner's love that defines us. Instead, we should seek to imitate God's love. We should seek to imitate God's love. Verse 35, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. I knew my dad used to give me good advice and now I have a verse to justify it. He used to tell me all the time, John, if you're going to let somebody borrow something, if you're going to lend something out, do so never expecting to get it back. Right? How many of you have ever let somebody borrow something and you never got it back? Yeah, exactly. Right? Now, I had to grow in my sanctification when it came to books. <laughs> Lending them out, knowing I'm never going to get them back. Right? But I do that now and it's fine. But money was the same way. He said, John, don't ever loan anybody money. If you have it, if you can part with it, then just give it to them and don't expect anything back. And at first that just seems like common sense, but you understand it, it's rooted in something deeper here. It's exactly what Jesus says. Love your enemies, do good to them, and let be generous and expect nothing back. It goes back right back to what he said. He said, what does the world do? At the very least, they loan money hoping to get the same back. Oftentimes, it's an interest. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says the, the, the thing that characterizes my people is that they're willing to say, just take it. I don't, I don't need it back. Don't worry about it. It's my gift. You just you go and do it. Well, I'll pay it back. Okay, fine, whatever. And you don't, you don't make a big deal about it. You're not calling them up every month. Hey, how are you coming on paying me back? Hey, hey, uh, you got that money for me yet? Jesus' people don't do that. They don't care about that much about money. They care about the person and about loving them and caring for them. And the underlying reason for the underlying basis for that is because this is the way God loves us. He's kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. He is merciful to those who don't deserve it. Jesus tells us that, but if you need more proof, just think about this. He's merciful to us. We're ungrateful. We're evil, and we certainly don't deserve God's love. But he loves us anyway. Paul says God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That, that is the supreme act of God's love. You ever say, I don't, I don't know God loves me. My life's not going well. Really? He gave you his son. That's how you know he loves you. The most precious gift imaginable the most costly gift imaginable and he has freely given it to you even when you didn't deserve it even when you didn't even know his name he gave that gift to you consider this jesus who was offered as our gift who came from god the father yet was hated and maligned who was betrayed 
by Judas, abandoned by his disciples, rejected by his people Israel, cursed by false witnesses in court, and mocked by soldiers who stole his garments. Not only did they repeatedly strike him and degrade him, but they crucified him, mocking his identity as God's son and Israel's king. And to all of that, what did Jesus say? He quotes from the Psalms. Again, there's lots of good Psalms about God taking justice on his enemies. That's not what he says. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. They don't know what they do. Moreover, what was he doing on that cross but showing good towards those who hated him? See, Jesus was not just passive in this. He, he was not just the victim of fate. He was not just rounded up, unable to stop, and was crucified and was willing to forgive. He went there willingly. He went there actively to do good towards his enemies. He atoned for the sins of those who were reserved for God's wrath. That's what they deserved. Because they sinned against a holy God. All of us have. And that's the only thing that we deserve in this life. Hell. Forever. It's just. And Jesus says, I'm going to love our enemies. Therefore, we go to the cross continually as Jesus' people because there we not only see the cost of God's love towards us, but we see the pattern of his love that we should seek to imitate. It's at the cross where we learn to love our enemies. The cross first tears down our pride and self-confidence as we come to terms with the fact that we deserve the cross, but Christ took it for us. We first realize we are sinners in need of a Savior. But then the cross also secondly reminds us that even when we fail to love, the way that God calls us to love, there is forgiveness with God through the work of Christ. Isn't that amazing? The standard, the example for how we are to love is also the remedy for when we fail to follow that example. Jesus was not just the example, though He is that, but He is not just the example. He is the Savior. He is the substitute, the sacrifice that makes everything between us and God right. That we might be forgiven and have life with Him. We aren't saved because of how well we love. We are saved because Christ in love went to the cross. Finally, the cross shows us again and again of God's love so that we can increasingly love like Him. Many years later, the Apostle John would observe this. We love because God first loved us. Therefore, again, we said earlier, we can't make ourselves love anyone. But God can transform the heart. How does he transform the heart? By reminding us again and again and again of his own love, which has been lavished upon us undeserving sinners. And he does that by reminding us again and again and again of the cross of Christ. It is not without reason that we are to repeatedly and regularly partake of the Lord's Supper, to be reminded of the Lord's death until he comes. Because the gospel message is that centering point that keeps us close with God humble and receptive and thankful to what he has done for us and is the center of the transforming work that God does in our own hearts by his spirit to make us to be loving people. This is why Jesus says that if we love this way, we will be counted as sons of the Most High. That language of sonship here is not about our adoption. It's about the living out as sons. It's not about salvation. It's about imitation. Again, in Jesus' culture... The, the sons did what the fathers did. If, you're, if the son was a baker, I mean, if the father was a baker, the son would be a baker. If the father was a carpenter, the son would be a carpenter. 
What Jesus is saying is, if the Father is a Father of love, then the sons and the daughters will also be children who display love. Jesus says, when you follow me, my Father becomes your Father. And the love that you show should look like the love that my Father shows. And the only way that that's going to happen is if you walk towards my Father and embrace not only the conviction that he brings, but the transforming work of his Spirit to make us to be a loving people. This week I read about a man named Dupree Rame, who by every account was an impressive, even an imposing man. In his college years, he was known for his athletic skill. Even once in a game of football, knocking out cold an All-American tackle from another school. Later, he went on to found the Fine Arts Division at Furman University where he had the respect of many. Shortly before his planned retirement, Dupre's son-in-law left his wife, his daughter, and their four children. And when he left, he took everything, leaving them destitute. A number of months later, this former son-in-law was diagnosed with brain cancer. And at that time, it was aggressive and inoperable. He was essentially handed a death sentence. And when this man went into the hospital for the last time, another elderly man came to his room with the intention of sharing and comforting him with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That man was his former father-in-law, Dupre Rame. Consider the man who was the father of the woman he had left, the man who was the grandfather of the children he had left, the man who had to come out of retirement now in order to support his family of five when he should have been enjoying his golden years and playing with his grandchildren. That man was there to comfort this unfaithful one with the word of God and to share the gospel, and he actually led him to faith in Christ. All of that from a humbled act of a man showing love to a person who did nothing to deserve love from him. That, my friends, is the power of the love of God through Christ. It can so transform us that we too can even love like sons of the Most High. May we desire that and seek that for our lives. Father, we are amazed and staggered by the love that you show us by sending Jesus to us. God, in a context like this where many of us have heard the gospel so many times, it is easy for it to become second hat. It is easy for it to become boring to us. But God, may that never be true. Oh God, remind us again, break our hearts again at the unfathomable grace and love displayed in Jesus taking on flesh, suffering humiliation and dying for sins. God, we are thankful that he did not remain dead, but rose again, seated at your right hand, ruling and reigning all things. God, may we seek to imitate him and his obedience to you. May we trust in him and in the sacrifice that he offered of himself that we might be made right with you. And Father, may we enjoy fellowship with him that more and more we might be transformed to love even as you have loved and so be known as Jesus' disciples. God, we pray these things in his name. Amen.